Well, we just heard uh, Violet read one of the most famous of all biblical stories, the tale of the so-called prodigal son. That's a word we don't use very often, prodigal. Prodigal meaning wastefully, recklessly, or rashly extravagant. That historic title for this story zeroes in on what Jesus refers to as the dissolute living of the younger son, also a word we don't normally use in common parlance. Dissolute, meaning depraved or debauched or immoral, decadent. Take your pick of the synonyms. All of them make for a real fantasy heyday. As a result, the prodigal son has found its way into countless books and dramas. From high art to low art, the shenanigans of the prodigal have kept the story front and center for centuries because all of us are susceptible to fantasizing. And each of us has our own idiosyncratic version of what living in the prodigal's distant country might entail. But the story is about many more things than the dissolute living of the younger son. Some say it ought to be called the story of the loving father because the action is really driven by what the father does. He willingly obliged his younger son's request for an early inheritance. He joyfully greets the young man upon his return and he even goes out to the resentful, self-righteous older son. Others say the best title would be the first line of the parable. There was a man who had two sons, and leave it at that, which has the merit of not over-focusing on a particular aspect of the tale, allowing the nuanced content to unfold organically. But here's another idea I rather like. I think the great party parable Sounds like a great title to me. I think this comes closest to the actual heart of the matter because the party is both the culmination of the youngest son's trajectory and the instigating problem for the elder son. I think the party comes closest to the underlying theme, God's amazing grace. The father pleads with his older son, We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. We had to party. What else could we do? Your brother was dead and he's come back to life. The great party parable gets to the heart of the matter. So the stakes in the story are life and death, because the Father says so. And that's consistent with what I've heard over the years from untold numbers of persons about their own life stories, how at a crucial moment in time, the stakes had been very starkly drawn for them. Some of you have told me your own stories about this. I've been privileged to hear those. This parable has found such resonance for two millennia because 
it reflects the true human situation, our human situation. If I ask today, for a show of hands, of the people in this space who could identify with some variation of the prodigal's plight at some stage in their lives, a fair amount of hands would go up, I think. Now, I'm not asking you because I think many of you would not want to raise your hand. But then if I also asked for a show of hands of those who more readily identified with the resentments of the older son, I'm guessing an equally large number of hands would go up. And some might raise both hands, right? But the thing is, Jesus reveals something fundamentally important here, important about our human situation. So, our story begins with the tale of an indulgent father and a young man who spends out his life in a wasted extravagance. Awakening among the pigs, he realizes he's as good as dead, and he concocts a humiliating plan to at least return to the ranks of his father's hired hands. He makes the right call in returning home. He wakes up and recognizes he's, he is as good as dead. That's the meaning inherent in living among the pigs, animals considered the most unclean by the strictures of Jewish law. He could be no further from his true life and still draw breath. We recognize the instinct, the instinct to return to the safest harbor we know when we're about to slip under the water. I'm as good as dead. I'll go home. But before the younger can make his pathetic little speech, his father sees him from afar and runs out to greet him and restore him and throw a party to end all parties because the father also knows his son is dead and is now ready to live. And the father can restore him to life. Now on the other side of the party, we're introduced to the older son, the guy who's hung back and taken on the responsibility of the household. In common, in common psychological parlance, he's the so-called responsible child. I bet there are a bunch of responsible children sitting in this room, in the family system. He's the one who makes it all work. With melodramatic flair, Robert Farrar Capon captures the responses of the older son. Capon had an ingenious way of capturing the intent of scriptural revelation. He makes a, the older son makes a stagey scene, nostrils flare, eyes closed, back of the right hand placed against his forehead, he gasps. Music, dancing, levity, expense, and on a working day yet. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. He is not happy. Why this frivolity? What about the shipments that our customers wanted yesterday? Who's minding the store? And the servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because 
he got him back safe and sound. Elder brother rants. The fatted calf. Doesn't he, the old fool know I've been saving that for next week's sales promotion when we show our new line of turnips? How am I supposed to run a business when he blows the entertainment budget on that loser of a son? He became angry and refused to go in. And finally, therefore, he makes a proclamation. I will not dignify this waste with my presence. Someone has to exercise a little responsibility around here. And Jesus, willing to oblige him with an important audience for all this grousing, sends him one. His father came out and began to plead with him. This parable is about life and death and life. That's the arena in which grace operates. The essential situation it addresses is the acknowledgement that without a dynamic and vital relationship with our graceful God, we are dead. And the two sons are the two sides of the same coin of the human situation. The prodigal is attached to his self-indulgent worthlessness, and the elder is attached to his self-righteous resentment. Both are dead in their attachments. And in their deadness, cannot revel in the party unless or until they respond to their father's entreaties, until they let go into the arms of grace. They cannot experience joy born from their acceptance of who they really are and whose they are and where their life will actually be found. As the story is told, the younger son discovers his deadness. The elder, by the end, had not yet discovered his. In this way, the great party becomes the litmus test of whether we are dead or alive. The father's joy tells the tale. Do we wish to share in the father's joy or not? And you see the irony for the elder son, given that, as the father says, son, you are always with me, and everything that is mine is yours. Still for that, the elder's resentment means more to him, means more to him than his father's joy. He is deeply attached to his resentment. It owns to hell with the party. I'll stick with the business of running the farm. Amazing grace works its magic in the land of the dead.
So the elder son is as ripe a candidate as the younger. The story ends without answering whether or not he will finally accept the truth of the matter and share in the joy. And of course, that's just where the story began. Remember how Luke reported, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to Jesus, and all the self-righteous, resentful types were grumbling and grousing and saying, Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And you recall elsewhere in the gospel, he's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. So, Jesus told them the great party parable. Friends, it is very important to recognize that this story is not intended as family therapy, but as spiritual therapy. This spiritual therapy strips us down to the essential dynamics of our existence, if we let it, to the elemental matters of death and life, to what real life means. It takes us into the inner recesses of our most basic identity and to our fundamental fundamental attachments which so very often keep us from joining God's party. <laughs> this sounds ironic or paradoxical or strange, but discovering how we each exist among the dead is one of the greatest blessings that can be given to us. It is a difficult-seeming paradox, I know, but with that discovery, amazing grace then does its miraculous work and we find we are home at last, joyfully feasting and celebrating as though there were no tomorrow. Oh my.